Hello and welcome to the Worcesterlies podcast. Continuing on from last week, we're sharing another episode of The World We Got This podcast, which is produced by the Faculty of Social Sciences and Public Policy at King's. Today's episode, continuing on the theme of the changing face of warfare, looks at how countries around the world and private individuals are expanding their defence and security activities into space and how closely these are linked with what is happening on Earth. It features academics from our School of Security Studies, Dr. Sophie Antrobus, Dr. Mark Hilburn and Julia Baum. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and if you want to listen to more episodes and subscribe to The World We Got This podcast, just search for it wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome to The World We Got This podcast, brought to you by King's College London. In this series, we take a look at the complex issues we face in the world today. We ask those researching and studying these fields about the scale of the challenge and ask them what society and each of us as individuals can do to help solve it. My name is Julie Weldon and this episode is the second looking at the changing face of war. This time, we're looking at how space has developed since the Cold War to become an integral part of military and security operations today. We will explore how our reliance on space is creating new opportunities and challenges, how countries around the world and private individuals are expanding their activities into space, and how closely events in space are linked to what is happening on Earth. We will also discuss whether we need to put in safeguards now how we can learn lessons from the past, and why we should encourage international collaboration to ensure space doesn't become dangerously overcrowded by satellites and space debris. In this episode, we'll hear from Dr. Sophie Antropas, Dr. Mark Hilborn, and Julia Baum, who are all based in the School of Security Studies in our Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy here at King's. So let's start with understanding the role of space in the world today. Through satellites, it is part of all of our daily lives, whether it's through banking, telecommunications, disaster monitoring or GPS. And it has an increasingly crucial role to play in warfare and conflict as well, as Dr. Mark Hilburn of the Defence Studies Department at King's explains. There are a number of space-enabled capabilities now that we're seeing, I think, that haven't been present in previous conflicts. We argue that Gulf War I is the first space war where things like GPS was a function in terms of some of the navigational functions, not for targeting. That was something we didn't have uh, in 1991. But broadly speaking, today, space enables a number of of military capabilities in areas such as navigation, uh, intelligence, precision strike, um, satellite communications, and increasingly the control of, of UAVs or remotely piloted air systems. Many of those require a satellite link as well as for, for wider functions. These are not new, but things like ballistic missile, early warning, and, and, and things like that. So these have been a function of military operations uh, for decades, but what we see today is increasing availability of these. Um, many more operators, that's different countries, but also private operators as well, and increasing accuracy. So you know, we get more and more better information, better resolution in terms of our, our imagery. And these are true you know, throughout all the different levels of war, strategic, operational, and, and tactical, where, where I suppose, you know, traditionally, going back to the 60s or 70s, um, space was very much a strategic 
instrument looking at strategic intelligence, ballistic missile, early warning, part of nuclear deterrence. Today, we think about a soldier's request for air power that would go through a number of, of space-enabled layers, you know, your SATCOMs to headquarters, then through to a UAV for eyes on, and then there's the delivery of that GPS-enabled warhead. So all of those steps are space-enabled. In fact, it's been estimated that at least 90% of the UK's military capabilities are reliant on space in some way. Here is Dr Sophie Antrobus of the Freeman Air and Space Institute at King's. There's really not an area of the military or of defence that doesn't in some way rely on space. Think of something basic like position, navigation and timing, knowing where you are, knowing where you're going, knowing precisely what second it is. Really, really important from a defence perspective uh, for everything from knowing and communicating with uh, your, your troops to potentially putting a, a weapon precisely on a target. So as surveillance and reconnaissance, we saw as Russia built up troops on the Ukrainian border ahead of the invasion, lots of images that were telling us how many battalions there were, what sort of troops there were. And those were images that were taken from space, from satellites. And as Julia Baum, a PhD candidate and researcher at the Freeman and Inking's War Studies Department explains, recent advances in accuracy are making a difference in warfare today. At first, reliance on GPS was a big gamble due to limited satellite capacity, but today we have the advantage of 24-7 GPS coverage with precision, you know, down to the centimeter. Today, space systems support land, sea, and air operations in maintaining that combat advantage because we can't just discuss space capabilities and services in isolation. Across the whole of an integrated domain, space gives geographic guidance for targeting, It enables command and control, it supports threat analysis and missile warning, and it also provides information about the weather conditions and operational areas. Another important change in space today compared to in the past is around who is operating there, as Sophie Antrobus explains. During the Cold War, 93% of space launches were made by the United States and the USSR. Now, the majority are by other nations, and in fact, 90% of launches are commercial. So it's a completely different sort of situation now, and over 70 countries have space programmes. So although we've always, um, or for many decades, been involved in space from a defence and security perspective, things have really changed in the last three or four decades. She said despite the public's love of science fiction, Not many people realise how intertwined space is in our defence and security today. She heard an anecdote about a serving member of the US Space Force, who was unable to take advantage of the usual perk of no luggage fees when boarding a commercial flight. When he showed his ID card that said Space Force, they didn't believe a Space Force existed, just wouldn't accept it, uh, wouldn't waive his fees until it it was taken up to supervisor level or something. So if you think in America where they're quite a lot further forward than us, and there's not even a knowledge that they have a space force. I can really understand that there's going to be a a lack of of, of understanding in the UK of what our military space activities and capabilities are. However, with events in Ukraine, with us seeing satellite images of troop movements in real time, and hearing about tech companies making decisions that could directly affect the war, perhaps this is shifting. Here is Julia Baum on this change towards open information. It's interesting to think about how the high degrees of secrecy that once shrouded Cold War space-based assets no longer exist today, where 
today's unclassified open information and particularly satellite imagery allows analysts to identify troop movements, uh, reveal the deployment of military equipment, and track the real-time evolution of conflict. Now, how has this changed the way we wage wars or carry out security activities is that there's this dichotomy of both the clarity and grayness that clouds our perception of warfare. In gaining new capabilities, there's unknown components of how these capabilities integrate themselves and whether they'll be used on the intended areas of application or other. The role of Google Maps in facilitating warfare is a really interesting case in point. On the 28th of February, Google temporarily turned off live traffic updates of real-time vehicle and foot traffic data in Ukraine. That shows that there's this concern about how data reveals the location of troops and refugees, because this data can, after all, end up facilitating military strikes or directing the next tactic. This shows that even the assets we don't associate with warfare can ultimately be used to wage wars or carry out activities. The role of private companies operating in space is one of the biggest changes in recent years, because they can be the ones gathering information in times of conflict alongside state intelligence agencies. As Mark Hilburn explains, this has interesting implications. So looking at the Ukraine, for instance, in the current conflict in Ukraine, that, that flow of, of imagery is quite extraordinary and the accuracy of that imagery. And that's quite interesting in that provision of that information. It was freely available. It doesn't necessarily drag a nation into war. So if it's an American company, it doesn't necessarily drag the United States into that conflict. It's a private operator. You know, we are now seeing in real time freely available information as to exactly where Russian anti-aircraft missile batteries might be. So it's quite extraordinary how that has changed in terms of who provides that information and what that does in terms of the characteristics and their kind of complexion of conflict. And as we saw when Russia began building up troops and tanks on its borders, such knowledge has reduced the potential for military surprise. We had satellite imagery of the Russian buildup for months. I mean, we knew that there was 100,000, there was 120,000 and more and more troops there. And that was freely available in the public domain. So certainly countries such as Russia or the US would have had intelligence capabilities to see that, but everybody could see that. As Julia Baum explains, the growth of private operators opens up potential new outsourcing opportunities for states around the world. Military communication satellites improve situational awareness and manage the battle space. But with the advantage of commercial actors in this domain, there's an ability to outsource data management work through private companies. So in a way, there's this advantage to the dual use ability to use the same satellite for both military and civilian uses. Satellites also have a number of functions. For example, a reconnaissance satellite provides intelligence, surveillance, target acquisition, and reconnaissance. Uh, it can gather visual and photographic data on signals, intelligence to collect radar defense information. This aids in war fighting. And for those working in intelligence, there's an ability to buy radar data and interpret it into images. Synthetic aperture radar satellites generate this radar at night. When you can see through the clouds, it measures how signals reflect back. And this essentially makes the ability to track movement much more accessible, especially when private companies can provide this imagery broadly to both military and individual researchers as well. She also highlights how private companies operating in space got involved in the Ukraine war in other ways such as SpaceX sending Starlink internet terminals to Ukraine. And while this offered the advantage of internet to Ukrainians, it could bring new risks too, which always need to be weighed up. It can also potentially be geolocated and targeted as the only non-Russian internet provider left in areas of the country. 
So new technologies in war zones are risky, especially when they're unfamiliar and can be singled out or traced by user radio frequency emissions. But in a way, it's kind of like painting a giant target on your back. But ultimately, when it comes to cost benefit, maintaining communication is critical at this junction. All our experts warn that alongside the advantages space offers, it does create a whole new range of vulnerabilities too, some of which are related to the increasing congestion in space. In 2015, there were 1,200 satellites, and this increased by 50% by 2018. And it's predicted there could even be 60,000 within the next decade. As more of the Earth is being covered by satellites, it is revealing new information and raising new questions around privacy, as Mark Hilborn explains. There is this prospect that given the potential numbers of, of imagery satellites that we could have what is effectively a 24-hour CCTV of the entire globe that anything could be seen anywhere at any time, leading to certain questions about privacy and things like that, but also you know, creating vast amounts of data. And, and people predict that you, know, you could calculate GDP on the number of trucks on the road of certain sizes and you know, how that varies. So the, the amount of data that we can exploit would be enormous. Julia Baum says the congestion in space brings a range of different challenges. Our increasingly crowded orbits make the stakes so high for both healthy satellites and also responsible behaviour. Orbital debris puts us at a risk of an increasingly likely Kessler syndrome, where the amount of junk in orbit proliferates so significantly as to render the environment inoperable. Anti-satellite tests certainly don't help, as even from China's 2007 ASAT test, there's still an estimated 150,000 particles of trackable debris left in orbit today. There's this uncertainty of natural hazards like radiation, meteoroid showers, and the geomagnetic spectrum that we need to come to grips with. On the 4th of February, SpaceX experienced this when 49 Starlink satellites were hit by a geomagnetic storm just a day after launch. The resulting atmospheric drag from the storm meant at least 40 of those satellites aren't likely to reach their orbital destinations, then burning up when they re-enter Earth's atmosphere. There are these natural hurdles in space security that are prevalent, and then there's also the ways that we have a hard time characterizing and minimizing potentially malicious activity. So GPS has changed warfare, but the relatively weak signals are susceptible to either jamming, which can degrade, disrupt, or destroy a satellite without physical contact. To offer a specific example of jamming, North Korea has jammed GPS signals with a report in 2016, noting a total of 700 fishing vessels and 962 planes that were affected by the DPRK's jamming. There's also GPS spoofing, which causes the receiver to lie with a false signal sent to the ground station. So with spoofing, ships can be lured off course. And jamming and spoofing are difficult to categorize into intentional or accidental occurrences because when a technology is in its developmental phase, there's room for error. Jamming and spoofing technologies are inexpensive and commercially available to hackers, governments, and criminals, making event attribution a rather challenging endeavor to source. So there are these challenges that come down to both the physical properties of space, but also in the operations themselves and the potential to make access inaccessible. Mark Hilburn agrees that our reliance on space is a weakness others could seek to exploit. While these assets afford a huge number of services and capabilities and provide the military, as we've just been saying, with tremendous advantages, simultaneously, these assets are virtually defenseless and they create then profound vulnerability. That's an awkward juxtaposition that I don't think really exists in other military realms. He says this applies particularly to the American military, 
because the USA has invested the most in space, and so depends on it more than any other nation. It also has such symbolic significance to America, which means it might not be comfortable with seeing the expanding program and activities of other countries. It's a symbol of the triumphant history, I guess, of the US during the Cold War. Uh, served as one of the most important symbols of their scientific prowess and, and global leadership. So any challenges in the space domain, for all of those reasons, uh, send real reverberations through to the U.S. symbolically, but also practically. While in Cold War times, it was the USA and Russia engaged in a space race. Now China is increasingly interested in it, for the same reasons as other countries around the world. It provides a number of capabilities. It supports many other kinds of, of capabilities. And, and these are things that extend from scientific experimentation and, and discovery. We're now looking at a, a space economy that's getting near half a trillion dollars. China will want to maximize you know, its portion of that and, and perhaps even try to dominate that, that economy. So China has been building up across all of those sectors and its recent achievements we can tick off show a, a real breadth of ambition. So the lunar missions, the space station, and now the second generation of space station. In late 2020, they flew a, what seems to be a reusable space plane, a bit like a mini space shuttle. We don't know much about it. Plan Mars mission, um, it's been showing its capabilities in terms of what we call rendezvous in space. It's the ability to maneuver close to and meet up with another satellite. That may be for you know maintenance or refueling, or it may be might be for malevolent purposes. We know very difficult to tell. So right across the board, China is making a number of very ambitious elements of progress, and I think it covers all of those aspects of civilian, commercial, academic, but also military. But beyond that, I suppose there's the political too. So China sees this as a, a symbol of achievement, symbol of status. It, it buoys up the Communist Party, and it shows that it's making great strides and great progress. And he highlights how Russia and China have been deepening cooperation in their space activities. And that might be for aspects such as the, the GLONASS and Beidou global navigation satellite systems, a bit like GPS. Those, they're working very closely on almost fusing those, things like space-based missile warning. Um, so Russia has undertaken to help China develop a number of different capabilities in the two it seems to be beneficial to both the, the kind of relationship where China has a, a lot of ambition, a lot of money, and a lot of scientific prowess. Russia has a lot of experience, both operational um, and scientific experience in the space domain. So, so beyond the West, that's an interesting dynamic that's also, I think, unfolding. I asked him how likely it is that China will use its capabilities in space for military purposes, given the dual-purpose nature of most technologies and platforms. And how concerning is this? Where we have seen China, I suppose, flexing its muscle a little bit is testing anti-satellite missile systems. So those are missiles that we fly from Earth up into space to hit satellites. And they, there was a very infamous test in 2007, and we know China have done other kind of flight tests. They're not the only nation that can do this, but that would be a concern simply because any what we call kinetic strike, anything that goes bang in space, creates debris. And this has knock-on effects for all users, including whoever prosecutes that strike. What is also very concerning and harder to see are what we call sub-threshold capabilities. These are things like dazzling, where you use a, a laser to dazzle sensors and maybe blind a satellite, jamming the signal so you just can't get any information, or, and we've also seen this happen, Russia and, and China are, and I mean, a number of other states can do it, interfering with the, the satellite signals of different kinds. So if you think about the position, navigation, and timing signal that comes from our GNSS systems, 
Russia has been accused of messing around with that signal to give false information, false navigational information. Ships have found themselves well off course. So the trouble is when that happens, you, you're still getting a signal, but you might not be getting the right information that can reduce your confidence on it. Those kind of capabilities are actually very prevalent. They happen quite consistently. <laughs> um, and they create a worry because they're hard to attribute. It's hard to either attribute that quickly or to say exactly who has done it and, and whether it's malevolent or accidental because uh, quite often jamming can happen accidentally simply because there's so many satellites close to each other. He says Russia carries out activity such as blocking GPS signals to drones or UAVs to give them their proper term in Syria and similar things are being seen in Ukraine. We know it's being done in Ukraine at the moment. Um, we can see GPS kind of denial activities happening. Ukraine has managed to work quite well around that, it seems. You know, we're dealing with a rather murky information quite often. Sophie Antropas says anti-satellite tests are also causing issues and could have implications for alliances on Earth. The Russian anti-satellite test that happened at the end of 2021 created quite a lot of debris and was broadly condemned, partly because of the way it was carried out. Now, there's bits of debris still flying around. And uh, uh, not long after that, a Chinese satellite had quite a close call with a piece of debris that could have damaged it. Those sort of things could escalate from a possible problem to a very real one. At the same time, space could also offer opportunities for new partnerships. A lot of us are familiar potentially with the Belt and Road Initiative, so the Chinese efforts to work with other countries, building ports and airports, investing, lending money to different countries, extending its, its reach through a sort of economic means. Now, they also are currently building a space station and there's opportunities clearly for China to offer places for other countries, uh, potential astronauts to go on that space station. Additionally, about 10% of the world's geostationary orbit satellites are built by the Chinese. They've got a really good market going, particularly close to them in the sort of Asian region. They're a supplier of choice. They provide attractive financing. And so they create alliances in that way. So there's almost as many examples of potential conflict or alliances as there are numbers of pieces of debris in space, frankly. In the UK, the Freeman Air and Space Institute was established at King's in 2020, thanks to funding support from the Royal Air Force through the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory. And Britain's first ever defence space strategy was unveiled at an event at the Institute in February this year. Mark Hilborn says the defence space strategy, combined with the UK's national space strategy published in 2021, gives a good holistic view of Britain's space needs and highlights what it can offer globally. The UK has certain overseas territories it might use where we don't have coverage from other nations or things like that. So there's there's ways where the UK can add to that kind of relationship with its allies without duplicating and, and, and wasting money. And so something like that is a good first step and it, and it seems to be part of the unfolding strategy. But also, and this is important across the board again, but it has relevance to the discussion of military space. The, the UK has been in the vanguard of establishing international policy on space in the UN. So it sponsored a resolution in the end of 2020 on the responsible behavior in space, and, is, it, and that's leading to other resolutions on specific aspects within that argument. But here the UK is, is proving to be effective, and this can be and should be, I think, a, a very much a part of future UK space strategy, shaping the rules, shaping the structure and the contours of governance in a way that can enhance stability and reduce the kind of misperceptions that are potentially quite prevalent in space. 
but also thinking about wider UK space policy, it could be a centre of, of other forms of regulation. So it's been a centre, like London is a centre for insurance, financial regulation. And so we're thinking about rules and regulations. Somewhere at London is already a centre like that, and it's a fairly, a fairly natural place in some ways for regulatory development. And so these are, I think, important elements where the UK has a strong hand to play the diplomatic um, and regulatory elements. And the more stable we make space, of course, then that has military payoffs as well. Julia Baum says the Defence Space Strategy, or DSS, is an important milestone that shows a cohesive direction for Britain on space. UK space power is clearly enthusiastic about growth and about making sure that the UK space sector is about intentionality rather than just catching up with others. In the DSS, £1.4 billion of additional investment was announced. The one thing that I would take away as perhaps one of the strongest parts of the UK's DSS is that this is the first defence space strategy where language of domination and space security were cast aside. This does a really great job of confirming commitment to the UK's role in orchestrating Resolution 7536 at the UN on Responsible Behaviours, and it also demonstrates how the language we use in defence is critical to maintaining an environment that's catered to space security and in redirecting that norm of defence hostility. Sophie Antropus agrees that space domain or situational awareness is a really crucial aspect to coping with the increasing congestion, and this is where history can help us. What I find particularly interesting, you know, with a background really in air power, myself and air power history before, is when we look at 100 years ago and after the First World War, aviation started to expand, commercial aviation started to become a thing, there was mail travelling um, from aircraft flying from this country to uh, the Middle East and, and further. In those days, there was the early discussions about how to regulate air traffic, who owned airspace, how we manage that. And increasingly, we're now talking, you, you hear talk about space traffic management for the same reason. That's not in place at the moment, but it's a, it's a, a live discussion. Because I think 100 years ago, you just couldn't have imagined that we'd have huge airports like Heathrow or Atlanta, clearly not quite as busy as they were two or three years ago, but still able to launch multiple large airliners with hundreds of people on every minute or so on parallel runways. And I think if we put ourselves in the mindset of those people in the early 1920s trying to scratch their heads and, and get this in place and get some regulation in place, I think, you know, in 100 years, we will have advanced in these areas and we will look back and think, gosh, it must have been quite challenging for those people in 2021, 22, trying to figure out how to do this. Intriguingly, it also seems individuals are helping shape the space security environment, as Julia Baum explains. With the explosion of public information and social media, media proliferates videos and photographs globally with particularly accessible satellite imagery, thanks to commercial imaging satellites, and also non-classified information. This lets anyone kind of dig in. Open source intelligence researchers are on new and social media, particularly Twitter, providing real-time accountability on activities, shedding light on otherwise opaque areas of information. As information is becoming more pervasive, social media demonstrates a trend where the sheer mass of content that would otherwise remain in a tighter-knit, less diverse circle is now engaging with broader audiences, widening that circle of opinion amplification, but also peer review. But to narrow in on the particular role this plays in the new space age, space is experiencing new and emerging activity that's cutting edge and experimental with indeterminable consequences. Tweets about space security tend to be 
reactionary towards news headlines because of this inherent ambiguity on the new frontier. So with space, there's this ambiguity where it's not only about understanding the event itself, but also the ramifications it holds for the unknown event, actor, environment, and future consequences. How the public and researchers learn to react to new space activity is impacted by this construction of reactions that shape the formation of normative behavior over time. And it's often influenced by quick and reliable commentary from well-known researchers and space professionals. If, for instance, you wanted to gauge the implication of Russia's recent anti-satellite test on November 15th, then you could log onto Twitter and immediately hear from the most esteemed researchers in space security. And just to quickly highlight, norms may seem like a static concept, but they're incredibly reliant on both the context and on those who shape perceptions of what a normal pattern of behavior really is. So how online users are explaining space activity is shaping the activity itself through not only this new accessibility to information, but also this new accessibility to analysis. I guess to just quickly sum it all up, I'd say that we perceive space activity in a particular way where certain types of activity are possible while others are frowned upon. Users of new and social media help to develop, enforce, and discuss threat perceptions of what normative behavior is, shaping the space environment as it unravels. Aside from what the public can do to shape acceptable behaviors and standards, what should we be doing at a national or international level to put in safeguards? Here's Sophie Antropus. Regulation in spaces is a very live discussion. Decades ago, the Outer Space Treaty was created, and that's an old document. It's still relevant, it's still used. What's interesting is the United Kingdom has been quite active in this area, um, led by the Foreign Office, by the FCDO. They initiated talks under the umbrella of the United Nations, and that's resulted in the establishment of an, what's called an open-ended working group. And that's there to basically talk about norms of responsible behavior in space, even down to defining what is unsafe conduct, because sometimes, you know, that's not necessarily something everybody will agree upon, and also promoting transparency. So there's a lot of work, clearly, I, I don't have a crystal ball, and I'm, I don't know how, how it's all going to end, but it, there's lots of active discussion. Julia Baum says we need to go beyond the Outer Space Treaty, or OST, to cope with the changes we see today the ways that do use space activity and diverse actors are proliferating. These security and commercial realities of space heighten threats and vulnerabilities in ways that the OST doesn't address. As it stands for concerns about the future, the proliferation of orbital debris is the main threat to continued access to space assets with an irreversible impact on the space environment. The kind of safeguards and measures necessary here must have some form of mutual responsibility or vulnerability that encourages the maintenance of an accessible space. This is like saying, uh, why poison the well from which you drink, where it's vital to determine more ASAT tests and hold actors and activities accountable in a vulnerable domain. I'm optimistic though about the direction of the UN 7536 Working Group on Responsible Behaviors. This is something that I look forward to with real impact on the determination of norms alongside trust and confidence building measures. We can certainly do more with binding international norms and rules against both orbital debris and interference with satellites. So what do our experts think the future holds? Here's Mark Hilborn. The difficulty, I suppose, is trying to understand what's happening in space rather than the increased use of space. It's our ability to understand and characterize what's happening in space is perhaps 
the step that we need to take in order to be more confident about what's going on in space. So the increased number of actors create pressures in terms of governance, but they not, might not necessarily be a danger. Our not knowing what they're doing might potentially be the most important thing that we need to, to work out. You know, certainly I think the fact that so many new states have space programs that we see commercial actors now, all of those identify space as an increasingly important domain. It's just we have to be very cautious about governing space. And it's important to understand it is very connected to what is happening here on Earth, as illustrated on the 12th of March this year, when the head of the Russian space agency, Roscosmos, claimed Western sanctions could cause the International Space Station to crash and that Moscow would no longer provide engines for US rockets. Sophie Antropus agrees that, while war today may be reliant on space, it is still very much determined by what is happening on the ground. War, in my opinion, for the time being, for probably my lifetime, will be facilitated by space, reliant on space, but be happening in the traditional domains, and of course there's the side domain as well rather than a sort of Star Wars scenario with lots of spaceships firing weapons at each other. I don't see that anytime soon. I think on Thoughts for the Future, as I mentioned, space situational awareness or space domain awareness, the, the, un, the improved understanding of what's where, who's doing what, is what's really important for the future, because that will allow, and if you're looking at this from a defence perspective, it allows the military to make more confident decisions, more confident calls and make them quickly. And if we get better at that, we should make things a bit more secure and stable. And my final thought about the future is just the fascinating issue of the commercialization of space, the sheer volume and number of operators that there are out there. And that's just going to continue. And they will have an increasing influence, I think, on how space is used. Clearly, space debris becomes such a big issue that they're no longer able to make profits they're going to have an, an opinion of their own, those commercial organisations, about whether more should be done, whether norms should be introduced and so on and so forth. So the power of their size is quite an interesting thing to think about. SpaceX, for example, their Starlink constellations have more operational satellites than China, just to give you some idea of, of how big their operations are now. So I think the influence that private companies, that commercial space businesses will have on where we go and what norms we develop, what rules we develop is a really important issue. I don't necessarily predict exactly how that will work out, but I think it's, it's critical. Julia Baum thinks the rapid growth of the space industry opens up the prospect of exciting new developments. Well, space has had a massive year, from NASA's successful Perseverance rover on Mars and the James Webb Space Telescope, to the growth of the commercial space sector and space tourism. It's exciting. Looking at this pace of growth and in industry, it's hard to tell what new capabilities could be developed in the future and how that might evolve in the security environment. But she highlights if global cooperation falters, then this could create challenges for space security. The ways we see cooperation degrade in wartime make it clear how vulnerable our space advantages are and how accumulating tensions increase the likelihood of space conflict. I really can't emphasize enough how cooperation and collaboration are at the heart of space security. Outer space has increasing importance in our daily lives, and we rely heavily on critical infrastructure that's so vital to the lives we live. From weather forecasting to communication and emergency responses, it's hard to imagine a modern world where the contribution of space assets is no longer there. And after all, the first thing I do when I'm about to go anywhere uh, is look it up on a map and sort my travel route. 
So looking ahead, I think it's important to be enthusiastic about new opportunities and developments, but also encourage sustainability and resilience for both military and commercial actors as it is a collective domain. And as Mark Hilborn points out, it is our decisions here on Earth that will determine what happens in the future in space. Space is not decoupled in that way. So where there's you know, terrestrial tensions, there will be astro tensions. So we have to remember that the kind of things that happen in space, you know, if there isn't tension here on Earth, they will probably not present a problem. If there are high tensions and then something does happen in space, that could then instigate some kind of, of conflict. So it's very interconnected with what's happening here, here on Earth. And so we have to be very cautious when we think of space as somehow decoupled and something other. It isn't. It's something very interconnected to, to what, what we do here on Earth. You have been listening to The World We Got This podcast. This episode was produced by the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy at King's College London and edited by Rachel Wall. To find out more about the research at King's on this and other global challenges, please visit our website, kcl.ac.uk. Please review, subscribe and share the podcast so you don't miss an episode and it's easier for others to find out about the series. 